0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to the second part of the episode, Never Work with Children or Animals. Last week we covered animals, so this week we're covering children. Let's jump right in. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Child labor laws governing what kind of work minors can do and how long they can do it have been in place on the federal level since 1916. Hours and wage laws for children in the entertainment industry are different from the standard laws for child labor. The hours laws are based on the age of the child and include stipulations for how many hours they're allowed to be on set in addition to how many hours they're actually working. There's also one set of rules for when school is in session, and one set for when it's not. During the school year, children aged 9 to 16 can be on set for a total of 9 hours, with a maximum time of 5 hours actually working. That's one of the reasons why the children of the forest on Game of Thrones were recast as adults. By the time the kids would be done in makeup, there'd be very little time left to film with them. The available hours for work drop in proportion to the child's age. For example, ages six months to two years, the child can only work for two hours and only be on set for four. When school's out, the hours a child is allowed to work are extended, but the total time on set remains the same. As for wages, minors must be paid the state minimum wage and follow all laws regarding overtime pay if they're not a professional actor. If they are a card-carrying professional actor the minimum wage laws don't apply laws vary widely from state to state on things like whether the child needs a work permit and how much they need to be accompanied by a guardian 17 states don't specifically regulate children working in entertainment much beyond exempting them from the rest of the state's child labor laws these laws are in place for a reason and the reason's pretty grim In the golden age of Hollywood, actors were essentially the property of the studio. If you listened to last week's episode on the treatment of animals in movies, it probably won't surprise you to hear that children weren't treated much better. With strict contracts, morality clauses, minimal labor laws, greedy or desperate parents, and almost no oversight, studio bosses were able to push child stars to and beyond the breaking point. Two of the biggest names in child acting also had some of the most alarming treatment. Yeah, it's going to get dark for a little while, but I promise to pull us out of this tailspin. Frances Ethel Gum changed her name to Judy Garland while touring with her two older sisters in their vaudeville act, where she was spotted by MGM in 1935 when she was 13 years old. Struck by her stage presence and singing voice, MGM offered her a contract and immediately put her to work as a girl next door opposite Mickey Rooney. Together, Garland and Rooney made movies at a non-stop pace throughout their teen years. They would work six days a week, sometimes 18 hours a day, which could mean constant singing and dancing, to pump out movies as quickly as possible. Most adults couldn't keep that up, let alone young teenagers. But the studio wasn't about to let a little thing like their star's health get in the way of profits. To keep Judy's energy up, the studio plied her with pep pills, amphetamines to help keep her perky and alert all day. When she couldn't sleep, they gave her sleeping pills. They had us working days and nights on end. They'd give us pills to keep us on our feet long after we were exhausted. Then they'd take us to the studio hospital and knock us out with sleeping pills. Mickey sprawled out on one bed and me on another, Garland told biographer Paul Donnelly. Then after four hours, they'd wake us up and give us the pep pills again so we could work another 72 hours in a row. Half the time, we were hanging from the ceiling, but it was a way of life for us. According to biographer Gerald Clark, Garland's mother was the first person to provide pills to Judy when she was nine years old. The amphetamines had a second purpose, to keep her weight down. From the start of her time at MGM, Judy Garland was subjected to constant abuse and harassment from executives about losing weight. This resulted in Garland starving herself and developing an addiction to pills that would be with her the rest of her life. A year prior to The Wizard of Oz, studio managers were sending memos to each other detailing her food intake. By the time the cameras began rolling, Garland was already in an upper-downer drug spiral. At age 14, the studio told her she looked like a fat little pig with pigtails. At 16, an executive told her she was so fat she looked like a monster. At 18, studio head Louis B. Mayer pushed Garland onto a diet of black coffee, chicken soup, 80 cigarettes a day, and diet pills every four hours. As if that weren't bad enough, Meyer was something of a Harvey Weinstein of his day, repeatedly molesting the teenage Garland while complimenting her singing talents. Control of the talent didn't stop at their schedule or their weight. To keep stars from making too many of their own decisions, studios would appoint caretakers to watch over them. Not for the children's best interest, but the studios. Garland and Rooney were given assistance who would report back to the studio with everything they did and said. Rooney was aware of what was going on. Garland, sadly, was clueless. When she discovered that her longtime confidant was actually a secret nanny spy, she was devastated. The obsessive need for control got so out of hand that studio execs actually began bugging the actors' homes Judy Garland became a star in her teens, but puberty was basically the end of the road for arguably the biggest child star of the 20th century, Shirley Temple. In 1932, Temple was discovered in a dance class at the age of three and signed to a contract with Educational Pictures by her failed actress mother. "'Sparkle, Shirley, sparkle!' urged her mother. She was signed to a two-year contract to make 26 short films at $50 a week, just under $1,000 today. Eight of these were part of a series called Baby Burlesques, short movies where toddlers in diapers acted out scenes as if they were adults, like flirting in a bar full of soldiers during the war. They're cute at a glance, but an adult temple would later describe them as, quote, a cynical exploitation of our childish innocence, and occasionally racist and sexist. I'm going to guess more than occasionally. Working at educational studios was alarmingly close to baby slavery. Rehearsals meant two weeks without pay. When the children misbehaved, as three-year-olds are wont to do, or weren't hitting their marks, there was the punishment box. Studio employees would lock them in a windowless room, with nothing to sit on but a block of ice. In her autobiography, Child Star, Temple wrote, Its lesson of life, however, was profound and unforgettable. Time is money. Wasted time means wasted money means trouble. Temple was put in the box several times, was forced to work the day after having an operation on her inner ear, and forced to dance on a badly injured foot. She was signed by Fox for Baby Take a Bow, earning $150 a week. After playing Spencer Tracy's daughter in Now I'll Tell, Fox loaned her out to Paramount for the lead in Little Miss Marker at $1,000 a week, or $18,000 today. The pay was getting better, but the way she was being treated wasn't. To get Shirley Temple to cry on cue, the director told her her mother had been kidnapped by an ugly man all green with blood-red eyes, and then filmed her terrified reaction. Temple made eight films in 1934 alone— including Bright Eyes, which marked her passage into superstardom, and for which she won the very first Juvenile Oscar, an honorary award with a tiny miniature statue. By the end of the decade, she was the highest-paid star in Hollywood. Her movies saved the Fox studio, which had been $42 million in debt. In all that time, though, all that Shirley Temple saw of her salary was $13 a month in pocket money. Everything in life casts a shadow, and fame came with some harrowing downsides. Even in the pre-internet days, wild rumors swirled that Shirley Temple was really an adult with dwarfism, who had a child of her own. People cited the evidence that she never seemed to lose her baby teeth. In reality, the studio had made her wear dental caps and temporary bridges to fill in for the teeth as she lost them. Her arduously maintained trademark ringlets were more than some people were willing to believe. Grown adults would yank her hair at public appearances in an attempt to pull her wig off. Temple's hair was washed with ivory soap, this was before liquid shampoo just for hair, and rinsed with vinegar, which she said put her off salad dressing for the rest of her life. Before bed each night, her mother would set her hair in 56 carefully planned curls. Possibly the worst thing said about her came from then-up-and-coming writer Graham Greene in his review of her movie Wee Willie Winkie. Greene wrote, Her admirers, middle-aged men and clergymen, respond to her dubious coquetry, to the sight of her well-shaped and desirable little body, packed with enormous vitality, only because the safety curtain of story and dialogue drops between their intelligence and their desire which is a hell of a thing to say about a nine-year-old. The studio promptly sued, and Green and the magazine he was writing for were ordered to pay the modern equivalent of $300,000. For more on what it's like to be famous at such a young age, check the show notes on your app or go to yourbrainonfacts.com to read an article by Mara Wilson, the star of the movie Matilda. Temple's career finally faltered in 1939, after she lost the lead in The Wizard of Oz to Judy Garland because Fox refused to loan her to MGM. Fox rushed her into their own technicolor fantasy, The Bluebird, which flopped so badly it was taken out of theaters after only a few days. Temple wasn't the draw at 13 that she had been at 3, and Fox let her parents buy her up the rest of her contract. Temple moved to MGM, where not only did her movies fail, producer Alan Freed invited her into his office, unzipped his pants, and exposed himself to her. Thankfully, Shirley was spared anything worse. By way of reaction, she giggled, and he threw her out of his office. When her golden hair turned brown, she became, to the public, an unremarkable teenager, wrote historian David Thompson. She retired from acting at age 22 after almost 50 films, 23 during the Depression alone. So you can imagine the surprise of Shirley Temple when she was an adult and discovered that of the $3.2 million she had earned, only 44000 was left. Bonus fact? Unlike most child stars who are only seen in mugshots after their careers are over, Temple went into international diplomacy. Richard Nixon made her the United States Representative to the United Nations, and she later served as the U.S. Ambassador to Ghana under Gerald Ford. She served in the State Department under Ronald Reagan, and held post as Ambassador to Czechoslovakia under George H.W. Bush. And she was the first female Chief of Protocol at the White House. Speaking of surprisingly good things, it was a surprisingly good week for interaction with our fellow brainiacs. No new reviews this week but three weeks in a row was a special treat. So big thanks for sharing posts to Lie Hard with a Vengeance, Eric Parfait, Conspiracy Theoryology, Charles with a Hammer, Fan Theory World, Richard Enrique's, Turn of Phrases Podcast, The Most Stable Genius, Stories of Your and Yours, Varmints, and Alphabet Flight. And a special subsection of thanks for everyone who shared posts about Spot the Lie the Patreon exclusive series starring yours truly, Sean from Stories of Your and Yours, Ryan from Conspiracy Theoryology, and Eric from Fan Theory World. Those great folks are 33 and a third percent pulp, Chronicles Podcast, The Countdown Pod, and Rick and Paul. What can we say? Podcasters are great folks. You can check out the show Spot the Lie, in which we take turns presenting each other with highly believable facts, one in three of which is made up by becoming a member at patreon.com yourbrainonfacts for as low as $2 a month. You also get mini bonus episodes, the opportunity to vote on show topics, and more. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science, wherever you get your podcasts. A child actor with a mysteriously empty bank account is a fairly common occurrence, dating back to the beginning of film. So must a tradition in the industry, as are kids fighting back. The very first person to involve the law on his stolen wages was also the first big child star, Jackie Coogan. He would be well-known later in life in a small-screen role, playing Uncle Fester on The Adams Family. Born into acting, by the age of five, Jackie Coogan Jr. was a veteran stage performer when Charlie Chaplin spotted him in 1919 and cast him in The Kid. As a child, making 19 movies before he turned 18, Coogan was one of the highest-paid and most merchandised actors in Hollywood. But at the age of 21, when he tried to get access to the approximately $4 million, about $67 million today, that he had earned, he learned that his mother and her husband had spent most of it on diamonds, luxury cars, and other frivolities. Under California law at the time, the earnings of a minor belonged solely to the parent. His mother, Lillian Coogan, argued during the case that Jackie had been having fun acting anyway, and no promises were ever made to give Jackie anything. His stepfather, Arthur Bernstein, added, Every dollar a kid earns before he's 21 belongs to his parents. Jackie will not get a cent of his earnings. You might notice even the man spending Coogan's money referred to it as his earnings. Coogan had to turn to his friend Charlie Chaplin for financial support. Eventually, he sued his mother and his former manager for his earnings, planting the seed for new legislation the following year. The California Child Actors Bill, also called the Coogan Bill or Coogan's Law, was passed in 1939. As it stands, the money that is earned and accumulated under a contract of the Code remains the sole legal property of the minor child who earned it, and is no longer community property. The law also requires that 15% of the child's money needed to be set aside in a trust account for their personal use when they reach maturity. Even still, parents have found loopholes over the year, and as a result, amendments have been passed to strengthen it. Under today's version, employers are required to set aside the 15% into the trust account rather than giving it to the parents and trusting them to do it. If the parents haven't set up a trust account, the money will be deposited with the Actors Fund of America. By 2013, the AFA had over 38,000 unclaimed individual deposits, over 80% of which had less than $99. So California amended Coogan's Law again to provide an exemption from the withholding and trust account rules for child actors who contract to provide services as an extra background performer or in another similar capacity. The bill's stated purpose is to eliminate unnecessary and inefficient procedures for those young actors who only work a few times a year in a very small role, as well as to give kids back their spending money. So if you're only acting a little... You can just keep your money like a normal job. Coogan's Law has hardly been ironclad in keeping sticky parental fingers off child actors' money. The 80s seemed to be a particularly bad time for it. There were few actors of the decade more recognizable than Gary Coleman. Although only a child on the show, Coleman remained four foot eight throughout his adult life due to multiple chronic health problems. The Different Strokes actor earned $100,000 per episode, but before long, the fortune that went along with his fame was decimated. In 1989, Coleman sued his financial advisor as well as his parents for mismanaging his money and won $1.3 million in court. His mother then filed a court request trying to gain conservatorship, or control, over her son's $6 million fortune, saying he was incapable of handling his affairs himself. According to Coleman, the move obviously stems from her frustration in not being able to control my life. And he then sued her for malicious prosecution. Needless to say, they did not have a good relationship. When Coleman died in 2010, at the age of 42, after an adult life that could politely be described as fraught, he hadn't spoken with his parents in more than two decades. After appearing in a slate of 80s hits like Stand By Me, The Goonies, and The Lost Voice, Corey Feldman became a millionaire when he was still in his early teens. By 1986, he discovered that his mother had spent a large portion of his earnings, leaving him with just $40,000 in the bank. Feldman started what he later called an Emancipation Proclamation of Hollywood, winning legal independence from his parents when he was just 15 years old. Thanks to his breakout performance in Home Alone, Macaulay Culkin wasn't just one of the most famous child stars, he was one of the most famous actors, period. Unfortunately, when Culkin was 15, his parents separated, and he and his money became a central part of their custody dispute. Frustrated that his mother was trying to use part of his money to buy a house for herself, Culkin filed a petition to be emancipated from both of his parents. Ariel Winter from Modern Family, Billy Unger from Disney's Lab Rats, Jenna Malone from Donnie Darko, Mishka Barton from The O.C., Leighton Meester from Gossip Girls, and Chris Warren Jr. from High School Musical have all sued their parents for misappropriating their earnings, and most of them also had themselves legally emancipated. TV and movies don't have this phenomenon to themselves. Singers Leanne Rimes, Aaron Carter, and 80s icon Tiffany all sued their parents, too. Child labor laws aren't only meant to protect the little actor's money, but also their lives. In Georgia, for example, where a great many TV shows and movies are filmed, child actors must have a representative, usually a parent, on scene at all times, emergency medical personnel must be on set, when an even potentially hazardous condition exists, and minors cannot work in any condition with a clear and present danger to life and limb. More importantly, as we think back on the stage moms from earlier in the episode, the representative cannot waive any of the restrictions. So no saying, no, my son can definitely leap from that burning building for you in order to get in good with the director. Terrible things can happen when the laws regarding child actors are ignored. 1983's Twilight Zone the movie was a tribute to the groundbreaking sci-fi anthology show with directing duties split between four directors, including Steven Spielberg and Jonathan Landis. Landis was also the director of American Werewolf in London and the video for Michael Jackson's Thriller, as well as being the father of writer-director Max Landis, who's recently been accused of abuse and harassment. Landis' segment was a loose update of the episode A Quality of Mercy, and starred actor Vic Morrow as a bigot forced to bounce through time as a Jewish man during the Holocaust, a black man being lynched by the Klan, and a Vietnamese man being attacked by American soldiers. The latter segment called for a scene in which Morrow tried to get two children to safety while coming under attack from an American helicopter. He had to carry seven-year-old Micah Din Li and six-year-old Renee Xin Yi Chen, one under each arm, across a shallow river, while the helicopter descended and explosions blew all around them. The helicopter was piloted by an actual combat veteran, but one of the pyrotechnic mortars went off at the wrong time, hit the tail rotor, and caused the helicopter to crash on top of the actors, killing them all instantly. Lee and Chen had been hired without the proper permits required under California law, and were being paid under the table. If the laws had been followed, the children would not have been able to work as late at night as they were filming, and would not have been able to be around that number of explosions. Associate producer George Falsey Jr. told the children's parents not to tell any firefighters on set that the children were actually part of the scene, and hid them from a fire safety officer who was also working as the welfare officer. Landis and four others were later charged with two counts of involuntary manslaughter due to the illegal hiring of the children. At a very public trial where the court was shown the footage of the accident, the jury decided that Landis did not expect the scene to be dangerous, and, for better or worse, all the defendants were found not guilty. As terrible as the Twilight Zone accident was, some good did come of it. At Warner Brothers, a behind-the-scenes revolution was set in motion. All of the unions and guilds in the business were represented in a committee to create a group of standards called safety bulletins. The studios then issued a manual to their employees based on the bulletin, known as the Injury and Illness Prevention Program. It wasn't an overnight process, and standards have received continual updates. The insurance industry has made sure that the safety provisions stuck. Before the Twilight Zone, insurance companies didn't view the movie business as a source of profit. Given how unsafe the film sets were, the likelihood of a payout was just too high. After the Twilight Zone, the industry's commitment to improving safety along with increased budgets made Hollywood a better risk. Soon, getting affordable rates to underwrite the shoot was a basic part of the movie-making process. And that meant towing the line with the insurance company, being completely transparent about what you were going to do and how you were going to do it. Perhaps the biggest evolution took place in the field of risk management, inasmuch as there was no one involved in risk management on set before. As opposed to insurance, which finances risk, risk consultants attempt to avoid it, or at least control it. The rise of computer-generated imagery has also taken a lot of the danger out of stunts, especially stunts involving explosions. The best way to avoid endangering your actors is to replace them altogether. And if it gets you around the time constraints for child actors, even better. Thus the rise in popularity of animatronic babies. These alarmingly lifelike remote-control puppets help TV and movies shoot a scene with a baby without all the baggage of, you know, a baby. Outside of entertainment, there's no other industry in the United States that allows a baby to legally work. Again, laws vary by state, not only for age restrictions, but the amount of time a baby can work in a single day. In California, the mecca of filming, a baby can only be on set for two hours, with a nurse present, and only work for 20 minutes. While in Louisiana, A baby that's at least one month old can work six hours a day. California law allows a baby to work at 18 days old, provided they have a work permit and a note from a licensed doctor that says that they were not born premature and can physically handle the rigors of production. In West Virginia, Wyoming, and New Mexico, there are no age restrictions for infants, so they could theoretically go straight from the hospital to the set. If a director can get twins or triplets to play a single role, the crew can shoot double or triple as much time. Plus, they can swap out a quiet sibling for a fussy one as needed. Premies are also considered a lucky find. If a state has a law that prevents a baby from working until it's a certain number of days old, a premature baby who is old enough to work can be used for scenes depicting childbirth or a newborn because they're smaller. It's yet another reason why twins and triplets are so valuable. They're usually smaller than other babies, so they can be used for the earliest childhood scenes. California is the only state where it's illegal to hire premature babies for show business. Movie and TV sets can be loud, with people and equipment moving around all the time. Unless there's a baby on set. Then the main focus of the production shifts to keeping the baby happy, and more importantly, keeping the baby from crying. If you've ever dealt with a crying infant, you know that much, if not all, of that precious 20-minute window can be spent crying. While a quiet baby is ideal, a sleeping baby might not be what you need for the scene. It's considered unethical to wake the baby, so they're either replaced with a look-alike baby or an animatronic. Bonus fact, you can't put makeup on a baby's skin So to simulate vernix Cassiosa, the goo that babies are covered with when they're born, the makeup crew uses a mix of jelly and cream cheese. My apologies to those of you out there currently eating breakfast. Modern animatronics are a far cry from bundles of cloth or plastic baby dolls, or even the super fake baby from 2014's American Sniper. They're carefully crafted and painted to look like real blotchy baby skin, with dozens of points of articulation. Says UK special effects designer Chris Clark, a baby's brain is still trying to figure out which electrical impulses control which body parts. I designed the mechanics to move generically the way a baby does, and the rest is getting into the head of the baby when puppeteering it. While the animatronics don't have any labor restrictions and can be under the hot studio lights all day, they do cost a few thousand dollars to rent, per day, plus the operator. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. While getting cast in a movie at two weeks old may be a stepping stone to fame, fortune is a little bit farther away. Since babies have no dialogue, they're paid less than other actors. On average, a baby will earn two to $300 a day. It's not chump change, particularly when you work retail like I do, but it's a far cry from what your child might earn if you, you know, waited for them to be old enough to talk. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And if you have listened to Spot the Lie over at patreon.com/yourbrainonfacts, be sure to leave a comment there or on the social media to let us know what you think and if you want to hear us make more. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend, the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.